0: Spoke Media.
1: Hello, ghost family. Welcome back to Family Ghosts. Today, we begin the second season of Family Ghosts. And as our team thought about the questions we wanted to explore in our stories this season, I kept coming back to the watchword of our show, every house is haunted. And I got to thinking. That phrase begs a question, which is, can you even have a family without ghosts? And what would happen if you tried to
2: create one? The first spark that led to The Love Family being what it is was an LSD experience. In
1: 1967, Brian Allen dropped out of the University of California and moved to San Francisco. And when he got there, he was crashing on a friend's floor with another guy who was also new in town. That guy's name was Paul Erdman,
2: and Brian wasn't sure what to make of him at first. He was always kind of a little bit of a hustler salesman, even then, and always really... Paul suggested that he and Brian
1: should get their own apartment and be roommates. He also suggested that Brian should put up all the money for the rent and the security deposit, which Brian did reluctantly.
2: But they found a place, and shortly after they moved in, They took some LSD together. What we ended up doing is turning face-to-face, knee-to-knee, sitting in lotus position, facing each other and looking into each other's eyes. Before long, Brian started to feel like he and Paul were melting into
1: each other, like he couldn't tell where one of them ended and the other one began. And then Brian started to have visions of faces, faces of his family members, and then faces of devils, and then the faces started changing, moving faster and faster before his eyes.
2: Ultimately, I started to see that all of these faces were really the same. They had the same quality. They were all parts of the same thing. Even the ugly ones, they were just part of the human spirit. And then I started to see that all of us collectively, that's like—that's what Jesus Christ is. Jesus is all of us. We're all Jesus. So we're saying this to each other, and he's having the same experience. So we're saying to each other while we're looking into each other's eyes, we are one. We are God. We are one with God. We are one with each other. And there was something else they said to each other. And we said, okay, let's try to just keep our focus in the present. Let's not talk about the past. Let's not talk about the future.
1: They didn't realize it at the time, but those words and this vision that Brian and Paul had together would completely change their lives, and eventually, the lives of several hundred other people.
3: Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War in mass marches, rallies, and demonstrations.
1: Meanwhile, outside the apartment, at the corner of Haight and Ashbury streets in San Francisco, the summer of love was in full swing. The Grateful Dead were playing some of their earliest shows in an old Victorian house. Scores of hippies filled the streets, smoking pot, dropping acid, reciting poetry, and protesting the war in Vietnam. By some estimates, 100,000 people flocked to Haight-Ashbury that summer. To the news crews that descended on the mayhem the hippies proclaimed that they were remaking culture, finding a new way for humanity to exist. In interviews, they declared that all of civilization was up for grabs. Students,
3: housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. Makeup and costumes were bizarre.
1: But over the course of their time as roommates,
2: Brian had the sense that Paul Erdman was in it for something else. He wasn't like all of the other people that had been attracted to San Francisco. He didn't have long hair. He didn't grow a beard yet. He was still pretty much a, a used car salesman kind of a guy. What he liked about it was the lot of easy access to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He was, he was exploiting it, and he talked about it. He just said, this is like so easy to exploit these these people here.
1: A year or so after that fateful LSD trip, Paul left San Francisco and went back to Seattle where he was from. He moved into a house in what was then a fairly run-down part of Seattle called Queen Anne Hill. Paul and a handful of housemates lived simply. They didn't have much in the way of possessions, and they spent most of their time having sex with each other, taking LSD, and talking about the visions they had. And somewhere in there, the group became consumed with this quest to figure out what was real and what was imaginary. As Paul sorted through his visions, he kept returning to the concept of love, and in particular, this phrase, love is real. And then Paul had another vision, the word love carved in gold on a pyramid floating atop a cloud that seemed to represent the discord plaguing American society. He suddenly had an epiphany that the concept of love was the only thing that could reunite God's wayward tribes of Israel, and that Paul himself was the one to unify them under the banner of love. And so, Paul Erdman, the man who'd been proclaiming that love is real, issued a new proclamation. From now on, he would go by the name, Love Israel. One by one, he began rechristening his housemates. One became Strength Israel, another Zeal Israel. As Love explained it,
4: Everybody represented a virtue, and so those are the names that we got. of what What we represented, even though we had all the virtues in us, that's what we represented. Everybody has a part to play. Everybody has a face of God to use. Everybody.
1: Gradually, Love began inviting others to come live with them in the house and bestowing virtue names on them. And Love gave the group a new name as well the Love family. Little by little, word started to spread. One day, Love's old roommate, Brian, got a call from an old friend from the San Francisco days. The friend told Brian he ought to check out what Paul was up to in Seattle, that Paul had changed his name to Love Israel and was getting people together. So in 1971,
2: Brian made the trip north to see what his old roommate was up to. Much to my surprise, when I got there, They acted like I was uh, somebody they were all familiar with, and it was about time I came home, like I was the prodigal son or something. Brian was welcomed with open arms. It was like they'd been expecting him. Turns out that Love Israel had told them all the stories of he and I living together and taking LSD together and seeing God in each other and kind of recognizing now's the time, love is the answer, and we're all one, and we need to do something about it. It's the logic of we are one. And when Brian arrived at the family's house, there was a new name
1: waiting for him.
2: I showed up, they already called me Logic, and I kind of sort of had a a place of um, leadership and reverence in the community, and uh, that was rather surprising to me. As
1: Logic, the prodigal son, began his new life with the family, he noticed something else. We had this zealous refusal to discuss our past. Love had taken that idea from their acid trip in 1967, that notion of trying to be completely in the present, and distilled it into a watchword of his own, an axiom the family recited regularly to each other. We are all one. Love is the answer. Now is the time. And it's that last bit, now is the time, that Love believed had the power to ward off ghosts. So last summer, our team spent a few months researching the Love family, and then we went out to Washington State and interviewed a bunch of people who were part of it. And today, we begin a three-part series about the Love family, beginning with the story of Love Israel, the man who tried to build a perfect family, but ended up becoming his own family's ghost. We are one, of us, the only
4: way. God is with us, God is with
0: us, with us every day.
1: From Spoke Media and WALT, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 8, The Love Family, Part 1, Love and Logic.
4: Remember that we are really all one. We're definitely a family. And, uh, you know, how it all shakes out, we don't know. But one thing we know for sure, we're a family.
1: Our story begins after the break. This episode of Family Ghosts is sponsored by Noom. Noom is an app that can help you improve your physical health and wellness by building positive habits around food and exercise. If you're a person who's been looking to adjust your behaviors when it comes to what you eat and how and when you work out, Noom gives you all the tools to do that, right in the palm of your hand. Take their 30-second evaluation to identify your goals and get matched with a goal specialist who will help you out with personalized tips It's like having a behavior change expert, a personal trainer, and a nutritionist all in one person. Plus, Noom connects you to a community of fellow users so you can discuss your challenges and get support and encouragement. Friends, I have a terrible time when it comes to lunch. It's the middle of the day, I'm totally famished, and I don't have a lot of time, so I usually end up just cramming something quick and filling into my face without even really thinking about it. But my Noom Goal Specialist has been encouraging me to build a ritual around weekly food prep Carve out some time on a Sunday to cook myself lunches for the week that I can feel excited about tasting and good about eating, not to mention saving a fair amount of money. So, head to Noom.com slash ghosts to start getting results today. It's out with the old habits, in with the new. Sign up for your trial at Noom.com slash ghosts. That's noo mcom slash ghosts. So how do you build the perfect family? The first thing you need is members, and Love knew where to find them. He'd seen the throngs of hippies looking to reinvent society in the streets of San Francisco, and knew that he was building this family at a time when lots of people were doing what they called the circuit— roaming between a wide range of communes and spiritual communities that sprung up all across the country in the late 60s, offering escape and sanctuary to those who were fed up with the Vietnam War, who didn't see a place for themselves in the profit-driven mainstream society, or who felt like their biological families didn't understand them anymore. One of them was the man who would eventually become serious Israel, a self-described spiritual dropout. In 1970, he and his girlfriend had decided they were fed up with life in the U.S., and they were planning to move to Canada. But on their way north, they stopped in Seattle, and someone suggested they should swing by Queen Anne Hill and check out this group called the Love Family. So before they left town, Sirius paid a visit to the house where love, strength, zeal, imagination, and a few others were living.
4: I walked into the place, and I felt like I was walking into a a holy space. It was very zen, very, very, very little furniture. People mostly sat on the floor on carpets. There was a sign on the front entry that said, all those who want to believe in Jesus Christ are welcome here. I didn't particularly believe in Jesus Christ or even thought I wanted to believe in Jesus Christ.
1: But there was something about the way Love spoke.
4: We have more in common with each other than anybody that I know of. I don't know of anybody I have more in common with than you. And I think it's the same for all of us. He had a way of making you feel like you were the most important person who'd ever walked into his life. And I think that was that was genuine. He really was seeing everyone that came his way as a potential life mate for him, for himself, that we were going to create this family. And that that was a very compelling thing. Plus, he spoke with a kind of authority that I had never encountered. And I was looking for spiritual authorities in my life.
1: But Love didn't invite Sirius to live with him and the others. He wasn't sure yet how serious Sirius was about dedicating his life to Love.
4: He sent me out many times because we weren't ready. He tells we weren't ready.
1: There were a handful of others hanging around Queen Anne Hill in the same predicament. No one was sure exactly what Love was expecting from them. So one night, Sirius and his fellow purgatorians gathered in a small room a few blocks away from Love's house and took some LSD.
4: I had an amazing revelation that settled all my doubts. I I experienced oneness with Love Israel, even though he wasn't there in the room. And I woke up the next morning from that experience, and word came to us through the, the grapevine that Love said it was time to all come home. In
1: addition to the name Sirius, Love bestowed another title on him, Elder. Logic was also anointed as an elder,
2: which struck him as a little bit odd. I had this somewhat unearned position of significance in the, in the Love family. And keep in mind, everybody's 20-something, but uh, the people who were 28 or 29 were called the Elders. As the months went by, more and more people started arriving on
1: Queen Anne Hill, many of them reporting that they'd had that same experience Sirius and Logic did, that sense that love was calling his children home.
5: You felt like you had to go, and you you didn't know why. It was almost like being a bison migrating. I mean, you just had to go. I must find my people.
1: That's Vision Israel, who was living in Cincinnati when Zeal Israel passed through town one day, talking up this theory he'd been developing.
5: He had all kinds of things written down in calligraphy and... Seven hills in Seattle and seven hills in Cincinnati, and there's parallels in Minnesota, is like that too. And um, just fascinating stuff. And he told me about love and this whole thing going on.
1: It was enough to convince Vision that she should check out the source of these numerological ruminations. She hitchhiked across the country and made her way to the family's house on Queen Anne Hill.
5: As I walked in the house, it's kind of like return to Oz. So it's basically, I don't know what y'all are doing, but I'm staying. <laughs> I'm in.
1: As Love's children came home, they began to notice this shared experience none of them could quite explain. People in the Love family seemed to somehow recognize each other, even though most of them hadn't met before. They had visions remarkably similar to Logic's early experience in San Francisco of gazing into Love's eyes and seeing a convergence of identities.
4: We'd be looking in each other's eyes, and all of a sudden, instead of the the familiar face that we were used to seeing, the faces would start changing.
2: And I saw faces of my family. I saw family members. And then it all started moving faster and faster and faster.
5: For example, I'd look at you and you'd... Faces would come through you that were every woman that's ever been kind of life-altering stuff.
4: And all of a sudden, they all just start merging together, and they're all happening there at once, and they're all all overlaid, and all of a sudden, it's just Jesus Christ looking at you, which was part of our understanding of what the meaning of Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ was the best of all of us.
1: Love interpreted these visions to mean that Jesus' virtues were reflected in the essence of each of his family members, as represented in the names Love gave them. And this sense, that history and divinity were converging on Queen Anne Hill, gave Love the next thing he needed to build his ideal family. A collective belief that this family was special, unlike any that had ever existed. A family, Sirius explained, united by a simple creed.
4: We're all one. Love's the answer. Now's the time.
1: Love encouraged his family members to forget about their old lives.
0: Love was like, well, we don't talk about the past. We don't we only stay in the present all the time.
3: You'd go, okay, what do we need to? How do we need to process this person? Mm-hmm. You know, at least to get him to quit talking about the past.
6: We never really talked about our past. We had to be present. And Love had
1: several ways of keeping his family focused on the present. Or, as Sirius put it,
4: we were people who were wanting to know the truth, and we wanted to know it. For real, so we wanted a higher reality. One of Love's pathways to the present was the morning
1: meeting, which took place most mornings, often before sunrise. Family members awakened and dressed themselves in the family's chosen spiritual garments long, flowing, handmade white robes. They would file into the living room of one of the family's houses on Queen Anne Hill, where all the furniture had been cleared out, save for a carpet and some pillows and a small table with a candle and a Bible. They would drink coffee with honey and fresh cream, and Love, or one of his elders, would pass around what they called the ta, a ceremonial marijuana pipe. There would be readings from the Bible, singing and chanting, and a group meditation, after which, family members were encouraged to share any visions they'd had. The visions were documented and filed away. I have to tell you, in
2: retrospect, I think some of it was... Love Israel's rather conscious manipulation of people. It was part of how he built loyalties. What you say out loud in front of witnesses and what you memorialize by writing down is a very powerful thing. Logic compared Love's
1: celebration of visions to a Baptist revival meeting, where a preacher might challenge the congregants
2: to come forward and let Jesus into their hearts. And Love worked that like a miracle. He just, you know, He wanted people to vocalize that they had seen God, seen Jesus, seen that he was a representative of Jesus and God, and that the Love family is where we need to be. And he worked it. He really tried to get everybody to have one. And if you didn't have a vision, then you almost weren't bona fide. For family members who were craving those bona fides, but
1: weren't having visions and weren't willing to make them up, as some members later admitted they did, Love might offer something to help them access that higher reality.
4: LSD or psilocybin or sometimes peyote.
5: It facilitates the possibility for taking the elevator instead of the stairs, as I call it.
1: Speaking of visions, that's Vision Israel again, the one who hitchhiked across the country from Cincinnati. She has clear memories of the wonders she experienced when she would, as Love called it, take the sacrament.
5: And you felt as within, so without, you could you could feel the energy and everything that was alive around you, everything, a tree, everything was absolutely lit to the nines. This pure love energy, whatever you want to call it, in every direction.
1: Vision told us that at least in her case, the drugs allowed her to witness miracles.
5: We had a guy that couldn't walk. I saw these two huge beings come in the room, get on either side of him, and the guy was walking around in the room that was crippled. I swear to God, I actually saw it. I really did. And uh, and then he fell, and I remember going, oh, he must have doubted. and uh, But he saw things like that. Every once in a while,
1: actual reality pierced the veil. In 1972... Two family members, named Reverence and Solidity, died from huffing toluene, a solvent used in paint thinner, and another of Love's so-called sacraments. But Love told his family that if the two fallen brothers were true believers, they would be resurrected within three days, which, naturally, didn't happen. But by framing the tragedy as a test of Reverence and Solidity's faith in him, Love found a way to deepen the family's belief in the mystical reality he was trying to create. Another way of keeping the family in the present was to interpret now is the time to mean that now is the only time that has ever existed. There was no more past, literally. When you joined the love family, your entire previous identity was erased. You renounced your old life, and you were reborn as an eternal being without an age or a birth date. Which, as a former member named Allen explained, created some problems with the police. We ever got stopped by a policeman,
2: we didn't have identification. We didn't have driver's licenses. And so the policeman would say, what's your name? And you tell him your name. And then he say, how old are you? What's your birth date? And you say, well, I'm eternal. And they would look at you like, look, I have to fill out this form.
1: If you don't tell me the answer, I have
5: to take you in.
1: This actually happened to Allen. He got arrested as a result of it and hauled down to the police station.
5: And I joked around when I said, well, you know, I'm,
1: I'm eternal. I'm kind of hungry. Got anything to eat? <laughs> I'm going to be here for a while. <laughs> but eventually, Love and the elders convinced law enforcement to print special ID cards for family members, complete with their virtue names and in place of a birth date, simply the word legal. And now is the time didn't just pertain to ages. Love forbade traditional timekeeping. No clocks, no calendars. Logic, the prodigal son told us that he knows he came to Seattle in 1971, but he's not sure exactly what year anything that happened in the family after that took
2: place. We gave years names, the year of meaning, the year of faith, the year of hope, the year of cleansing, Uh, but we didn't associate those with a calendar date. In
1: the late 70s, a sociologist named Robert Balch was studying the Love family, and he visited one of their properties. He realized he wasn't wearing a watch, and he couldn't find a clock anywhere.
7: And so if you asked somebody what time it was, they would simply say, now is the
2: time. We had no radio, no television, no newspapers.
5: We had music. The closer I see you Old man fear He just melts Right on for of me Alan, that
1: guy who got arrested for being eternal, told us music was a fundamental part of creating that miraculous atmosphere.
4: Every night it was music. Every morning it was music. During the middle of the day there would
1: be music. Many of the members that joined were musicians, and the family had its own songbooks full of original spirituals and folk music. Alan sang one of them for us.
4: Growing good food and Creating good entertainment and making beautiful clothes and looking beautiful and making beautiful environments and then inviting people in and, and turning them on.
5: It's love and nothing else. No, I love to see.
4: There was an amazing thing going on, and miracles were happening all the time.
1: But no matter how much seemingly miraculous energy was floating around the Love family, a higher reality where everyone supposedly exists in the divine, eternal present isn't easy to maintain. Logic told us that in the early days, the Love family was barely surviving.
2: Everybody that joined the group put everything they had into the community pot, and that money was used to pay rent and buy groceries and supplies and that sort of thing. But really, it was pretty meek and pretty poor times because nobody had much. Most, most of us were either hitchhiking or living out of our vans. I was living out of my van, a Volkswagen van. Um, and so, you know, it was just a bunch of hippies getting together without much money at all. In 1970, the family created a formal charter, written by
1: hand in Gothic calligraphy and bound in blue paperback. First, the family declared itself the Church of Jesus Christ at Armageddon, a reference to an obscure passage in the New Testament which they interpreted to mean that, in addition to the catastrophic end times, Armageddon can also mean hill of special fruit. On page 11, the charter says, quote, "...members of the Church of Armageddon will give all they possess to the Church upon joining." Which was another convenient way for love to disconnect family members from their past. At first, people would sell their wedding rings and give the proceeds to the family. They'd donate their monthly welfare check, empty out a meager savings account, or offer whatever allowance they were getting from their parents. Every once in a while, someone who had a BMW joined, which the family could then turn around and sell. It wasn't much, but it was just enough. Seattle was in the midst of a major economic recession. There was widespread unemployment, and lots of houses sat empty, particularly on Queen Anne Hill, where Love had managed to get that first house. And this meant that landlords weren't as put off by a bunch of spiritual seekers in robes and long beards as they might have been otherwise. So the family had a handful of houses, and about 100 people crowded into them, sleeping on mats on the floor, spending their days gardening and meditating. And there was one more ingredient Love needed to make the family feel like they were really living in the promised land. He discovered it when this guy showed up.
3: I had, you know, plenty of money and sports cars and all that. I didn't need any of that stuff. It was just more about, uh, you know, real relationships with people. Daniel Gruner joined
1: the family in the early 70s. He had just gotten out of jail for running away from the police in one of those sports cars he had plenty of, which was filled with marijuana. After about a year in prison, Daniel was released on the condition that he spend some time reflecting on his crime, and he went to a monastery where an old friend tracked him down.
3: He rolled into the monastery there and dressed uh, old English, you know, kind of. And he had long hair and a beard, you know, and just that that kind of a guy, you know, just a big, you know, penetrating eyes.
1: The friend told Daniel he ought to come to Seattle and meet the Love family. So after his time in the monastery was up, Daniel did exactly that. And there was a lot about the family that was appealing to Daniel.
3: You're just seeing, well, this is what human beings do, you know, we're, we're here on the planet. We're just supposed to love each other. It's not supposed to be confusing. We shouldn't have to explain everything to each other all the time. You just get simple and look around, you know. It's kind of what it was about, like simplifying the, the outlook. But as Logic told us, Love
1: also saw something very appealing in Daniel. It turns out that Daniel had bought all that marijuana and all those sports cars with money he'd inherited from a relative who worked for DuPont, where the relative had invented polymer. He had traded the patent for polymer to DuPont for DuPont's stock, which made him rich. So rich that by the time Logic met Daniel... I think he was the third generation that had not held a job. It's hard to overstate how transformative Daniel's wealth was for the family. Logic had told us that most of the people who joined the family and donated their possessions gave things like wedding rings or maybe a car. Many of them showed up on Queen Anne Hill carrying everything they had to give. In Daniel's case, there was so much money to collect that he and Logic had
2: to embark on a multi-state road trip to find it all. So we're out there gathering up all of his stuff. And he's kind of treating it like Mardi Gras. It's his last big fling. I should mention here that Logic was no stranger to money. His father was
1: Steve Allen, who was, among other things, the first host of The Tonight Show. But Logic says Daniel Gruner's wealth was beyond anything he'd ever experienced. During the road trip, they stopped in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, at what Logic called the fanciest
2: restaurant he'd ever seen. The first thing that shocked me was they knew him. It was like, Hello, Mr. Grinner. Um, and they took him to, like, his table. And it had this beautiful view over Lake Coeur d'Alene. And when the menus arrived, the, uh, I noticed right away that there were no prices on anything. Still, even
1: if Daniel's reputation had preceded him, Logic says their long-flowing love family robes made the waiter a bit skeptical. Daniel thought the waiter was being snooty, so he told the waiter to bring them the most expensive bottle of wine they had in the restaurant. The waiter scoffed and said there was no way he could possibly afford that. Oh really, said Daniel, then bring us two of them. But logic says, Daniel wasn't just spending money to show off. Like a lot of Love family members, Daniel was against the war in Vietnam. But unlike most of them, because of his biological family's stake in DuPont, Daniel was also directly profiting
2: from the war in Vietnam. One of the stories Daniel told me while we were out driving around the western United States was as the war in Vietnam escalated and they started dropping more and more Agent Orange and Napalm, both of those increased his dividend checks. And so here's this guy, fourth generation wealth, who would get larger dividend checks every time the war escalated. And he had enormous guilt about it. Um, And he was kind of in a phase where he was almost trying to give his money away. It was blood money, and he felt bad about it. And he had given it to people all over the western United States, and that's what we were on our way around to go try to find and collect. and, um, And ultimately, he gave pretty much everything to the Love family. Perhaps most acutely
1: of anyone we read about, Daniel had good reasons for wanting to escape his biological family's past. Exactly how much money he gave the love family isn't totally clear, but the conservative estimate is in the low millions. Which, for a hippie commune in the early 70s, or for anyone at any time, really, means things are about to change pretty radically. Which is exactly what happened.
4: I gotta say that it's really Danny's introduction of all that wealth in the family. That's when I first saw the shift in love.
2: It really brought out another character in Love Israel that most of us hadn't seen much yet. Our story continues after the break.
0: We know there's a lot going on in the news. China is still struggling to contain the coronavirus. It has been a turbulent year in politics around the world. Smoke
1: darkens the skies above Aleppo's countryside.
6: This fire is burning out of control. And it's just 25 miles from Canberra, Australia's But here's the city. thing. There are also a lot of compassionate people doing amazing things for others every day.
1: How do you pay someone back who saved your life? I am so incredibly grateful that I need to pay it back to her, but also pay it forward to others.
0: Hear those stories on Kind World, a podcast about how acts of kindness can transform lives. That's Kind World. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
1: Before we move on, I want to take a moment to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. It's called Killer Knowledge from Parcast. If you're a fan of true crime, and you want to put your skills to the test and be crowned an undisputed expert, then you should definitely check out ParCast's new trivia podcast, Killer Knowledge. It's all the mystery and suspense you've come to expect from ParCast, now in a fast-paced, interactive format. Every Tuesday, two competitors go head-to-head to to correctly answer multiple-choice true crime questions. Whoever gains the most points after 20 questions wins. Each episode dives deep into a different, shocking topic from history, such as the Manson family, Jimmy Hoffa, and even the Jonestown massacre. With each question and answer comes additional content surrounding the event, enlightening even the most knowledgeable true crime lover. You can play by yourself, challenge your friends, and prove your prowess by sharing your results with Parcast on social media. You never know, you might even find yourself in the hot seat one day. Follow Killer Knowledge, free on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out more Parcast shows on Spotify by searching for Parcast in the Spotify search bar. Or go to Spotify.com Parcast. Shortly after Daniel Gruner joined the Love family, Love Israel gave him his new virtue name, Richness. And shortly after that, Love started spending Richness' money. The first
2: thing Love wanted to do
1: was buy an airplane. Over time, Logic told us, Love ended up buying not one, but three airplanes. He explained to the elders that he needed planes so he could visit the family's new 300-acre ranch in Arlington, Washington also purchased with richness's money.
4: There was a classic old fire engine with the bell and everything that we drove around the ranch. Was, that was a lot of fun.
1: Suddenly, the family went from barely covering the rent on its meager holdings to having things like a novelty fire truck. They bought the houses they'd been renting on Queen Anne Hill, giving them a robust compound in Seattle, plus that 300-acre ranch about 45 miles north, which had a sprawling lake lush gardens and fruit trees, and newly erected households full of family members, more of whom were showing up all the time. The family also got a boat, a 137-foot wooden World War II minesweeper, which Love decided they needed to reach their other new property, a second ranch in Alaska, which had also been Daniel's. More than ever before, Love was able to offer his family what seemed increasingly like a higher reality. Why would anyone want to live anywhere but with the Love Family, right now, in this glorious time of miracles and wonder?
4: I mean, if we believed in the world as it is, we'd be there. We don't believe in it at all. You know, we think it's not real.
1: By the late 70s, the Love Family's membership had swelled to almost 400. But some of the newcomers weren't entirely convinced Love was the answer.
0: I think I was in the family for four weeks or more before I ever met him. And I was kind of taken aback because of his um, needs to be recognized. Jl was one of the family's midwives.
1: And she had her suspicions about Love Israel from the moment they met.
0: I can remember opening the door and this man standing there with this big smile on his face thinking that I'd know who he was or you know something and I'm going who are you? <laughs> because I also remember in my mind kind of the feeling like oh he reminds me of my ex-husband which was not good. <laughs> But you know there I was in the middle of all these people that I I was really loving them the the people I loved the music the music was oh so important to me So
1: so JL stayed and it's a good thing she did because JL had been a registered nurse in her life before the family and the family was starting to have babies a lot of them.
0: I stopped counting births at like 186 or something in my birth career, and you know, it just was a lot. Births were an important part of the Love family's
1: spiritual practice. As many as 20 people would gather to celebrate the arrival of Love family babies. Like all family gatherings, there was music, praying, and chanting. The births were a joyous occasion, but if it hadn't been for J.L they might have been a much more dangerous one. So far, we've talked a lot about the belief system Love created for the family. Equally important, however, were the things he didn't believe in, like modern medicine, which was another one of the things you had to leave behind when you entered Love's eternal garden. He told his family that their physical ailments could be healed through the power of faith. Visits to the doctor were strictly forbidden, as were eyeglasses. As Love explained to a news crew in 1979,
4: even, I think, even the people, doctors in the world see that if people really exercise their eyes, and uh, they can uh, cure them.
1: Completion Israel recalls her mother being ridiculed for being clumsy.
6: She was always bumping into things, and her depth perception wasn't good, and other members noticed just her as being more clumsy. And then once she snuck off and got fitted for some contact lenses, and started wearing them. And I believe it was Love who said, you've changed quite a bit. He noticed that she wasn't so clumsy anymore. And she just, oh, thank you, you know.
1: And for family members in crisis, J.L. was one of the few sources of reliable medical advice.
0: Well, I just remember a person coming up to me and going, J.L., what's wrong with me? And I looked in her pupils, and she had uneven pupils. And I said you need to get to the doctor right away. I think you have a brain tumor or some kind of a head injury or something. And it had been going on, these headaches and and stuff. And when it got to blurred vision, she came to me. And she had a tumor the size of a lemon that was removed from her brain.
1: Another thing the Love family didn't believe in was marriage, or at least not marriage as it was understood outside the family
4: in a very real sense we felt like we were we were marri- we were a marriage we were a group marriage page 21 of the family charter
1: declares quote worldly marriage is null and void all worldly relationships dissolve upon joining the church love interpreted this passage to mean that men should be free to have multiple partners if they so desired and that love should be the one to decide who slept with who
4: we called it sanctioning so If two people felt attracted to one another and they wanted to be sanctioned, to be a couple and to start a family, have children, they would have to get permission from love, ultimately.
1: Sirius made it sound like these partnerships were created out of mutual desire. But Vision Israel told us that in her case, she didn't have much of a choice.
5: When I was flown to Alaska, it was— had said to me, So, do you like confidence? And I said, Yeah. So I was kind of like a male older bride.
1: We don't have to wonder whether Love was a misogynist. He wrote it directly into the family charter, which reads on page 23, quote, within the family, the men as husbands will have authority over the women as wives. And predictably, the principal beneficiary of the sanctioning policy was Love himself. He reasoned that since he was the head of the family, all the women were his wives. Love also used his position in the family to make it seem as though being chosen as a sexual partner had spiritual significance. Beyond his primary partners, Love would periodically choose a woman in the family he was attracted to and anoint her with a new title, Priestess of the Day, or according to the sociologist Robert Balch.
7: There was the joke among some of the people that this oh yeah, the lay of the day.
1: Completion Israel, whose mother had to sneak away from the family to get covert contact lenses, told us that one winter, Completion's grandmother made the mistake of sending Completion's mom a nice coat in the mail.
6: In the wintertime, families like ours sometimes would only have one meal a day and, and no socks. And so my my grandmother saw that my mom was cold, and so she went and bought her a really nice down winter jacket, very expensive.
1: But then Love saw the jacket on Completion's mom and decided that he wanted one of his preferred women to have it.
6: So he um, commanded that the jacket be given over to this other lady, and so my mom gave the jacket.
1: Sometime later, Completion's grandmother came to visit the ranch and saw that her daughter was again freezing without a jacket, so she bought her another one. And again, when Love saw it, he took it for one of his priestesses.
6: And then the story repeated, but my, my grandmother kind of got smart, and so she bought my mom a really ugly second-hand store, really ugly winter jacket. And, um, and my mom got to keep that one.
1: Knowing how much money Richness Israel brought to the Love family, it's fair to wonder why any of its members wouldn't have warm clothes to wear in the winter. But as both Sirius and Logic told us, something changed in Love Israel when richness's money came to the Love family. Having built a supposed sanctuary for his family and stripped them of their possessions and identity in the process, Love had made them dependent on his vision for the higher reality he wanted to inhabit. And as time went on, mothers couldn't get Love to give them money for milk or shoes for their children. One article about the family estimated most of its members were surviving on the equivalent of 65 cents a day. And meanwhile, sociologist Robert Balch told us, Love Israel was having the time of his life.
7: Love is going to concerts, he's buying expensive suits, he's smoking Cuban cigars, he's going on vacations to Hawaii and Mexico. And so he's becoming more and more removed, spending more and more money on himself. Love's
1: access to food and comfort, while so many in the family were literally starving, casts the priestess phenomenon in an even more sinister light. Being Love's partner meant you also got a better chance at surviving the harsh conditions of the family's supposed paradise. You got to sleep in his bed instead of on a rolled-up mat on a cold basement floor. You got to eat lavish, specially-prepared feasts instead of making do with boiled carrots for weeks on end. It meant you literally got the coat off someone else's back. And on top of all of this, Love found yet another luxury to spend the family's money on.
4: He had a weakness for cocaine.
1: The coke wasn't the same as the sacramental marijuana and psychedelics. Love used those to bring people together. Logic told us that cocaine was a different story.
2: As Love deteriorated more and more into his cocaine and, and freebasing habits, um, he became more and more withdrawn from the community. He was very isolated. He was physically gone. He'd take trips and he would stay up in his room for days on end and not connect with anybody Robert Balch says Logic wasn't the only elder
7: concerned about this development. As one of the elders told me, he says, "Eh, Love occasionally would ask, you know, do you think I'm too far into it? Meaning, am I doing too much of this? I said, no, Love, I think you can handle it. Even though I didn't really believe that. Around this time, a news crew visited the ranch
1: and asked Love if he thought it was dangerous for him to wield so much power over his family.
4: To be very pointed, you were to become suddenly uh, ill mentally. Mm-hmm. You could lead these people down the road to something disastrous. Oh, I feel my brothers keep me balanced.
1: But unbeknownst to love, one of those brothers was about to betray him.
2: I have to admit that the whole time I lived there, I always battled having this other vision of him. I believed that he had had a real transformation, that he'd realized that he was a bad guy and needed to be a good guy and that that was genuine. Over time, he got drunk on the power and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that's what I observed. We'll be right back.
1: Back before there even was a Love family, or elders, or a ranch in the country, back when Love Israel was still Paul Erdman, living in a small apartment with Logic, who was still Brian Allen, Brian had his doubts about Paul. He knew that Paul hadn't come to hate Ashbury because he was moved by the politics and the betterment of humanity.
2: He knew this because Paul told him. He was exploiting it, and he talked about it. He just said, this is like, you know— so easy to exploit these, these people here. Before he became Love Israel and forbade his family from talking about their pasts, Paul loved to tell Brian all about his own. He told stories about things he'd done in his life that he would kind of be proud of and cackle about, about people he had cheated and stolen from and beaten up. And, you know, he was, he was proud to be kind of a badass guy. But as
1: Understanding Israel explained... Once Paul became love, he had a way of making people believe he was someone far more virtuous, God's chosen messenger for the revelation that now is the time.
0: If you look at it from a point of view of brainwashing, we woke people up in the middle of the night, we sat them in meetings and told them the same things over and over again, Oh, and then we broke down who you are. The past is gone.
1: Love was building a family separated from its own history. So many of the members of the Love family joined precisely because they wanted to get away from the past. They were fearful about where the country and their lives were headed. And Love encouraged them to forget about all of that, to be reborn into a world governed by miracles where the past no longer existed. Instead, Love Israel offered something else, an eternal present where the answer to big questions was simple and complete, Him love is the answer. We are all one. Now is the time. And when there were aspects of that eternal present that were troubling or scary or dangerous, it was dismissed, the reality of the situation flatly denied. Sociologist Robert Balch told us, love had a name for doubt. He called it darkness.
7: If you had a contrary opinion, if you were complaining, if you had disagreements with other people, you know, love might walk into the room, a morning meeting, say, and say, "Um, so, Integrity, why are you so dark today?
1: And even if the darkness became overwhelming, If you looked around and saw love retreating into a haze of cocaine and people starving and women being sexually manipulated and children without shoes to wear, what were you supposed to do? Leave? With what? You'd signed over all your worldly possessions to the family when you joined and given up your name. At that point, love had to be the answer. But
2: the past always catches up with families, whether they believe in it or not. Love was often his kind of crazy, extravagant phase. And he had his third airplane, and it was new to him, and he was getting pretty druggy. And eventually, the past caught up with Love Israel. One day, he sent a message out that he was going to fly over the ranch, and he wanted everybody to quit what they were doing and form a big circle in the big meadow so that he could see it from the air. And it was kind of the height of his detached hypocrisy. Next time on Family Ghosts, logic confronts love. So my first decision was to see who would support a coup. That's coming up in part two of our story.
1: Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lye, Jacob Smith, Lindsay Cradwell, Jenna Hannum, and Jonielle Kastner. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett and featured original music by Jesse Brenneman. Our theme music is by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Greta Rainbow. Executive producers for season two are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tavakolian at Spoke Media. Special thanks to Posey Gruner, and also to Daniel Gruner, who passed away between the time of our interview with him and the publication of this episode. Thanks also to Hannah Palin at the University of Washington Special Collections Film Archive, Penny Gruner, Sarah Viers, Oza Faye Viers, and Debbie Becker. Our story about the Love Family is by no means a definitive account. And if you're interested, we've got links to lots of resources for learning more about the group on our website, including the documentary, It Takes a Cult. We thank Eric Johansson, a.k.a. On Israel, for allowing us to use clips from his film in our story and encourage you to watch the whole thing. To find out where you can do that, or to see pictures of the Love Family Charter, and much, much more, please visit familyghostspodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our email list, The Ghost Post. If you'd like to follow our show on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at famgoshow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O show. Thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. You're listening to WALT Homemade Radio. Ghost family, thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of what we do. Today, I need to ask for your help. This is something that will only take five minutes of your time. Please go to spokemedia.io survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. It really helps us find advertisers, which helps us keep this show in your podcast feed. That's spokemedia.io survey, and thank you.